So we're continuing our Made for Relationship series. Well, I think we're into week five of six, and we've looked at all kinds of issues, sexuality, marriage, friendship, dating, all, all kinds of things. Today, we're looking at singleness. But before we jump into the Bible passage, I just want to set the context for why we're doing this series, particularly for those of you that maybe have just joined, joining us for the first time today. So at St. Thomas's, we're aware that everybody um, is in the process of spiritual formation. We're all being discipled in one way or another. If it's not by Jesus, by the, by the authority of God's word and the power of God's spirit, then we're being formed by our friendship group or our university or our workplace or Netflix or Channel 4. And the world tells us all kinds of things about relationships And what we want to do as God's people is that we want to be formed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. We also want to be the most inclusive, loving and grace-filled community that we can be. And we know that the only way to get there is through the gospel. Over the past few weeks, and in fact, every single Sunday, whenever we open God's Word, we're confronted with with stuff that doesn't match our experience. It doesn't match what culture has told us. It doesn't even match our desires or what we want to be true. And so we're asking every single Sunday, not just through this series, for God to speak his truth to us and for him to form us by the power of the Spirit and his Word. And so there will be some stuff today that Alice and I share that is controversial. There will be some stuff that we don't want to hear. And there'll be some really encouraging stuff as well. But it's our prayer that as we go through these Bible verses, as we have been going through the the Bible every single week in this series for the past few weeks, that God would challenge us and take us and form us into the people that he's calling us to be so that we can be the most radical community that welcomes everybody and proclaims the good news of Jesus because what the Bible says about relationships really is good news. So that's where we're going. Um, If you could open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and while you're doing that um, this sermon's going to be a little bit different. Normally one person stands at the front and exegetes the text. In other words we work verse, verse by verse through a Bible passage and ask the Holy Spirit to apply it apply the truth of that passage to our lives. Today is a little bit different, and for the first time, Alice is sharing from the Bible on a Sunday, which we're really excited about. So 1 Corinthians 7, we're kind of going to be in the whole chapter today. Um, So we're going to read from verses 7 to 9, 25 to 28, and then 32 to 40, just because it's a long chapter um, we're going to just read those bits, but don't, you don't have to remember that. I'll guide us through it as we read it now. So 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, um, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. I wish, this is Paul writing, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 25. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. 
Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin married, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and in, an, and in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so like Ben said, today we're going to be talking about singleness. And I'm sure there are some of you wondering how it's going to go. Some of you wondering how it's going to apply to you. And I think it's important to say that there will be thoughts and feelings and opinions associated with relationship status. And that's okay. We're just going to look at the Bible passage and have a conversation. So before we get into it, we thought it was important to address some of the myths that we frequently hear or have heard about what it's like to be single and to be married. So Ben, some of the things I think that as culture and sometimes as church, we believe about married people, either explicitly or subconsciously, are... Marriage is a sign of success. Married people only spend time with other couples. Once you're married, you have it all together and everything's fine. Um, and marriage makes you less lonely because you have an automatic person, whereas someone who's single has to intentionally spend time with someone. But what are some of the things that you believe about single people? Yeah, so um, I think lots of those myths that you've just, and, and some of them are myths, um, said about um, perceptions about marriage is absolutely right. I also think there's some... Um, assumptions that go around in the church and in culture about um, single people, and here are some of them, um, that single people are much more independent, able to be independent, and are free to do whatever they want, when they want. Um, single people have far more time for deep friendships, and that singleness makes you less lonely than being married. Um, now, clearly, some of these assumptions that go around in the church and in culture are not true and, and, and need challenging. And as we discussed last week when we looked at marriage, and we're aware that in church culture, married privilege or marriage privilege is very real indeed. Yeah, I think when someone says, are you married or do you have a family? And the answer is yes, the conversation flows very easily. But if the answer is no, it kind of falters awkwardly. So I think that even if we don't actually articulate it, marriage privilege is often enacted because it's such a significant part of culture today. Absolutely. And so one of the things that we want to do 
today is to ask God what he says in his word, particularly that passage that we've just read together, 1 Corinthians um, 7. And what we're doing here, as we've said all along, is we're asking not only the Bible to critique culture, as it always does, but what we want the Bible to do is to critique us, the culture in the church, because we want to build the healthiest culture. The hel- we want to be the healthiest church family that we can be. So like Ben said, so far in the series, we've looked at friendship, sexuality, dating, and marriage. And lots of those are relevant to the things that we'll talk about today. Now I would go so far as to say that everything that we've talked about so far has been a subset of friendship and that singleness is no different to that. Absolutely. So um, before Alice leads us into the first thing that we're going to look at today, I thought it would be helpful just for us to set some context for those verses that we've just read from 1 Corinthians 7. So if you look at verse 1 of the passage, um, which we didn't read, but keep your Bibles open, look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Paul is clearly answering a series of questions that the church in Corinth had asked him about marriage, sex, and relationships. And this chapter is Paul answering those questions. Now, as we've said a number of times throughout this series, Corinth was an interesting place to be a new Christian and for a church to be planted into. The church in Corinth, when Paul wrote this letter, was very young. It wasn't like it had been around for decades and decades. It was a new church plant. And the sex ethic in Corinth was that you could marry, but you could also sleep with whoever you wanted if you were married, as long as the people that you were sleeping with weren't also married. In fact, you could, as a married man, go to the temple and worship by sleeping with a whole group of prostitutes. That was one of the ways in which you'd worship. And the church in Corinth had been formed in... In, in that cultural moment, had been planted in that particular culture's view of what it meant to be, um, to be human, what it meant to live out your sexuality. And the church comes and is planted into that context where Christians believe that sex was for marriage and that marriage is for one man and one woman for life. Now, our, the culture that we're in today isn't that much different. You know, there's lots of views out there about sex and sexuality that, that are different to what the Bible teaches. And so sometimes as Christians, it can feel like we're, we're kind of going through this journey for the first time as the church, that, you know, what we believe about sex and sexual ethics is, is just so radically different and we're uncharted territory. Actually, the church has been wrestling with these questions ever since, well, ever since the days of Adam and Eve, to be honest with you. And so we're just asking God to speak to our culture and the church culture as well. So our first point today is this. Singleness is a gift. Yes, Alice, you say that singleness is a gift. And as you say that, I guess one of the questions I want to ask you is, um, as somebody who is single, does singleness always feel like a gift? No, it doesn't. But I would argue that no gift always feels like a gift because your enjoyment of that gift depends on the context and the people around you. I think it's particularly difficult to accept singleness as a gift if you're someone who's single but wants to be married one day, but not unwanted gift is still a gift. And when your strange step-uncle twice removed gives you an unwanted gift at Christmas, it's chosen poorly because he doesn't know you very well, but God knows us best and he knows us fully. And I would argue if we can't get our heads around the idea of singleness being a gift, It's not because God's misunderstood us, it's because we've misunderstood him. I think that plus 
the unhelpful way that singleness is often spoken about in culture today? Yeah, so I notice that singleness is often spoken about very um, unhelpfully indeed. So as a vicar, I get the privilege of being able to take lots and lots and lots of weddings, which is fantastic. But I often hear the parents of either the bride or the groom say to me at the end of the marriage service, fantastic, that's one child down, only one more to go. Or one parent has actually said to me, thank God he finally got married. Now that's not particularly helpful because it, it implies that marriage is the thing that we are all aiming for. And I wondered, Alice, if there's some things that you've heard in church culture that have, uh, are also unhelpful in terms of the language that we use. Yeah, I think <clears throat> it's less often the actual words that are said and more the tone with which they're said. For example, how long have you been single for is often said with less curiosity and more of a kind of awkwardness or sympathy. I think people say things like, oh, it's such a shame they're still single or no, they're not married yet. Um, which both kind of perpetuate the idea that singleness is not something you should be content with. I think that we refer to single people as unmarried, but we would never refer to a married person as unsingle. <laughs> and I'm not saying that we need to eradicate all of that language. I just think we need to notice it and to pay attention to what it is that we're communicating. I think people are well-meaning, but subliminal, subliminal message is, when are you going to get married and start life like the rest of us? But life doesn't start when you get married. It starts the second that you commit yourself to following Jesus and join his family in baptism. Oh, man, absolutely. I knew you'd like that one, Ben. Yes. I love baptism. We've got some next week. Come bring a friend. They're going to be amazing. So singleness doesn't always feel like a gift, I guess is what you're saying, Alice. But the Bible communicates that it is. And so one of the things that I want to say as the, as the vicar is that we need to commit ourselves as church family because remember, one of the reasons we're doing this series is so that we can be the healthiest church family that we can be. I want us to all commit to not using unhelpful language about either marriage or singleness, like the ones that we've just been, you know, just, just shared from our own experience. And the reason that this is important, whether we're married or single here today, is that at some point in our lives, we all have the gift of singleness. I had it until I was married. Now, either me or Ellie will have it again at some point in the future when one of us dies. That's a sad thing to think about, isn't it, dear? Um, but it's true. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uses some pretty strong language. In verse 8, he says that it's good for the unmarried to stay unmarried. In verse 28, he says to the unmarried men in Corinth, don't look for a wife. And so Alice, Paul, um, Paul is using the language of gift in these early verses, 7 to 9, to talk about singleness. Um, as you've been praying through this passage and, and studying it, what, what, is it that, what is it that you think Paul's saying here about why singleness is a gift? I want to start by echoing what you said earlier, that everyone in their lives either has been or will be single. And I think that having the gift of singleness doesn't necessarily mean that you don't want to get married or that you don't wish you were still married. And it doesn't mean that it's an easy gift to carry. You have the gift of teaching, Ben. But I can imagine that sometimes carrying and using that gift is quite difficult and laborious and maybe full of responsibility that you don't always want. But that doesn't make it any less of a gift. And I think we tend to sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, define singleness as an absence or a lack. But Paul sees it as an opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord, like it says in the passage. 
In verses 32 to 35, Paul says that someone who's single can be free from concern, in verse 32, not concerned about the affairs of the world, but concerned with God's affairs, in verse 33, have undivided attention or devotion to the Lord, in verse 35. And I think significantly for Paul, the most important thing in life isn't romantic love, but pleasing God. And for him, he could please God better as a single person, and others can please God better as a married person. So, Alice, as I'm reading this, as somebody who is married, I'm thinking, gosh, am I, concer- am I you know, not concerned about God? And am I really not concerned about God's affairs? And Do I really not have undivided um, attention to the Lord? And I guess if you're married here today and you've th- these verses might, you know, offend us a little bit and, um, and shake us a little bit. We'll come on to that in just a moment. Um, what I want to ask you, though, Alice, is how does being single enable you to practice those things that you've just read out from verses 32 to 35? I think that actually some of the myths that you mentioned earlier do actually have some truth to them. As a single person, I can spend time with God in the morning without having to think about what anybody else is doing. I can volunteer at church and fill my evenings and do things at the weekend without having to make arrangements with a spouse. And what I do with my time is solely between me and God. And there is a lot of freedom in that. Paul describes the attention of the married person as being focused on worldly things, like you said. But that's because you should be. You have a wife to think about. And I'm fairly sure that Ellie would be sad if you told her you couldn't hang out with her because you had to go and talk to God. For Paul, being unmarried means fewer distractions in serving God. I think, unfortunately, for a lot of Christians today, single and married, that thing itself is the distraction. And I think that that's somewhere that we need the power of the Spirit to do his work in each of us. But I have a question for you, Ben. If you're someone who's single and you recognize it as a gift, how do you reconcile that with also having the desire to be married and to have children? And I would put myself into that category. I'm content in my singleness, and I'm thankful for the way that it enables me to serve God's kingdom and to bring him glory in this stage of my life. But I would like to be married someday, and I would like to have a family. So how do you hold those two things in tension? Great question. Thank you. I think there's, there's so much to unpack theologically just in asking that question. Um, I guess the question that you asked earlier, Alice, is, is an unwanted gift still a gift? I guess when looking at the, um, this particular gift or any gift that God gives us, the answer to that question is yes. So, you know, there's some things that I know that I've been gifted for by God that I have to do as part of my job. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I don't want to do those things. But I know that I've been gifted by God to do them. Um, as we've already said, the reality is, unless you're married, I'd argue even if you're engaged, you are single. It, it, that, that's true it, even um, for those of you that are in long-term committed dating relationships as well. And so I guess the thing that the Bible's compelling us to do here is to not waste the gift that has been given to us now, whether that's the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. So I'd say to you, Alice, continue to do the things that I can't do, that you can do because you're single. It is absolutely true that if I make plans and Ellie doesn't know about them, I am in deep trouble. Um, And that was something that I had to get my head around. I'm still getting my head around, even 10 years into marriage. Um, And so lots of those things that you've just talked about... um, are true. I guess the other thing to think about is what's behind the desire for intimacy and the desire to be married and the desire to have children and all of 
those kinds of things. Because as we've talked about throughout this series, I think that all of us have a longing for intimate relationships. All of us have a longing to be connected to family. But that doesn't mean, church, that it has to be in the Western vision of family, which is a man and a woman and 2.4 kids. That isn't the only biblical concept of marriage. And we'll think about this a little bit later on as we go through the passage. But being single does not exclude you from being part of family. It doesn't exclude anybody from helping to raise children. But at the same time, it's not incompatible to have the gift of singleness and at the same time want to be married. Um, I guess that lots of, lots of us in the room have a desire to be married and a desire um, for children. And as Paul says, being married doesn't make you any less holy. It doesn't make you any more sinful. Paul says, you know, if you want to get married, get married. You are not sinning. Um, I guess it's about where we find our fulfillment and identity. So again, we've thought about this a lot over the series. But if we think that finding the special one is going to somehow make us whole and bring us ultimate fulfillment, well, I'm afraid we're going to be very much um, disappointed because there's only one who can bring wholeness and only one who can bring ultimate fulfillment, and it's Jesus Christ. Um, Alice, you've asked me a tricky question. I've got a question for you. Um, We're talking about singleness being a gift for you. Yes. Um, but I believe that your gift of singleness is also a gift to us as the church family. It's a gift to me, it's a gift to Ellie, it's a gift to Meg. How is it that, how is it that your singleness is a gift to the church family? Great question. <clears throat> In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes that we should use our gifts to serve one another. So you use your gift of teaching to serve the church family. You use your gift of marriage to do the same. So why should the gift of singleness be any different? Going back to the passage, and like we've already mentioned... Paul says that a married person is concerned about the world and the affairs of the spouse. So as a single person, I'm able to keep my eyes fixed on God and what he's doing, which I think and hope is a gift to the church. I think that as a single person, and especially as a single person person in a church with a lot of married couples, I can bring something to the table with experiences and insight that are different to yours. I would also say it's easy to assume that married couples have to have the single person around, always have to demonstrate hospitality, because for some reason, like we've said, we see married people as having it more together. But I can show hospitality too, which hopefully blesses others. And some particular examples that spring to mind are things like childcare. I have the capacity as someone who doesn't need to base my day around other people to offer babysitting and time and childcare bubbles in the time of the pandemic, while others might not be able to. I also think that Living in the truth that singleness is a gift enables me to live in a way that challenges the world around me. Yes. And Alice, you are a gift to us. Isn't, isn't Alice a fantastic gift to us? I think the second thing we want to say is that singleness helps us to redefine lots of what culture says is true. So culture says, and we've, again, we keep saying this, but we keep thinking about this in the series, that marriage is the ultimate relationship and the only way to fulfillment. Um, culture says that there's one person for you in the world who's going to make you right. Culture says that, um, that you have to follow through physically on your sexuality in order to be fulfilled. And so, Alice, I guess as we're reading these verses, it helps us to rethink a lot of that kind of stuff, doesn't it? It does, yeah. This, uh, this shouldn't come as a surprise, but Jesus was not a married man. And the frequent use of that phrase in singleness talks doesn't make it any less true. Jesus was single, and he was the most fulfilled person that ever lived. 
to imply that living a single celibate life is dehumanizing because we need romantic love to be fulfilled is to imply that Jesus was only subhuman. He lived a life of purpose with a deep web of relationships as a single person, and we don't need romantic relationships to be fulfilled. Yeah, so I guess one of the things that, we're, that Alice and I have been processing and talking about as we've prayed through this passage and, and talked about it all week is that the church needs to rethink and culture needs to rethink a whole host of things, particularly around sex, friendship, and love. So if Jesus was the, was the most fulfilled person that ever lived, we need to reframe and rethink singleness because, singleness because he, can't have, he can't have got it wrong. Um, one of the things that we need to rethink, and this is relevant for all of us in the room, is sex. Um, we looked at this when I spoke on friendship a, f- a few weeks ago, but again, culture has a way of saying that the ultimate form of intimacy is sex. And that the best form of relationship is romantic and that if you do have a deep connection to somebody, then it must end ultimately in sexual fulfillment in some way in order for it, um, in order for it to be true, I guess. Yeah, I think we place far too much importance on sex. We know the world does that, but it also definitely happens in the church. We believe that sex outside of marriage isn't right, but the language we use, waiting for marriage, still makes it seem like we're all waiting for that checkpoint so that we can finally have sex, which I think is unhelpful. Sex becomes this thing that never gets spoken about other to say it's great within the context of marriage. And when you add that to the fact that the world is talking about it all the time, it can become the whole reason that people want to get married. But like you've said, we don't need marriage or sex to be fulfilled. Culture says celibacy is too hard and it's unfair, so we should make marriage more accessible. I think verse 9 of the passage seems to say that marriage can be too hard for some, so he recommends celibacy. We're told by the world, and often behave as though, sex is the only and most important form of intimacy. But that isn't true, and it devalues other forms of intimate relationships, like friendship and other ways of developing intimacy. Yeah, so what Paul says here, in, in, particularly in verse 37, is pretty radical, isn't it? Paul basically says, if you can make up your mind not to have sex, then don't do it and don't get married. That's completely the opposite to what culture tells us. So as we're reading this, I guess one of the questions that we need to process as a church family is if sex isn't the only way towards intimate relationship, how can other relationships also be intimate? In other words, how do we need to continue to rethink and redefine friendship as the church? Friendship is something which is really important to me. An intentional friendship, which you spoke about a few weeks ago, Ben, is something which I feel very passionately about. I think vulnerability is key. Listening, intentional time, both with and without plans, and serving one another. And I think the covenantal uh, friendships, like the ones that we see in the Bible, are really interesting as well. Yes, so there's loads of amazing intimate friendships in the Bible that don't end in with any hint of, you know, of sex. Jonathan and David, Ruth and Naomi, Jesus... And John, there's loads of them in scriptures, in the, in the scriptures. And I guess one of the things that the church has unintentionally done is that the way that we've behaved, the language that we've used, our elevation of marriage as the ultimate form of, of friendship has meant that we've somehow unintentionally closed access to in, intimate, relationship for, intimate relationships for people that aren't married. And that's not helpful for anybody. 
Because in order for me to thrive, I need healthy relationships with people that are single. We need each other. So Alice, do you think that, you, that it is possible to have a close friendship with somebody if you're not married to them, like an intimate friendship with somebody that you're not married to? And how do we process that with people that we're close to of the opposite gender? Well, I think it's definitely possible to have a close, intimate friendship with someone of the opposite gender. <clears throat> One of my closest friends is a man, and I'm very thankful for the nature and the depth of our friendship, which, at least as far as I'm concerned, has never leaned towards anything other than a wonderful friendship. I think that, as with all relationships, having wise boundaries, whether spoken or not, and depending on the context, is helpful. And if Joe does get married, our relationship will change, but that's true of my friendships with female friends as well. What about you, Ben? Do you think you can have a close friendship with someone of the opposite gender other than Ellie? Yes. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, is, that is really possible. Um, one book that I'd really recommend that we all read on this subject is Kate Wharton's single, um, book on singleness, Single, single Minded. Um, it's a fantastic book. Kate wrote a, a few years ago now a blog that was quite controversial and did the, did the rounds on um, Christian Twitter. Don't look at it, Christian Twitter. It's quite depressing sometimes. Um, and she basically said that, you know, this, this, there's often a rule quoted, particularly in evangelical circles, that if you're a man, you can't possibly ever spend any time one-to-one on, one -one with a woman. And if you're a woman, it's very unwise for you to spend one-to-one -one time, you know, going out for coffee, for example, with somebody who's a, who's a man. Kate leads a church. She's, she actually helps lead New Wine um, with me and Lee and a, f a few other people here. She's the assistant national leader. Um, and she's in a world that's dominated by male church leaders. And in her blog, she said, to say, blog, she said that basically to say that, you know, she can't learn from a man by going for a coffee with him. Um, basically communicates to her that either she's not trustworthy or the person that she's going for coffee with isn't trustworthy as well. It places, a, it places an unseen ceiling on, on, on how far she can go in terms of her leadership because there's going to be certain avenues that aren't open to her unless she can get to, get to know other people. Um, it also, uh, she wrote about how that's you know, offensive to single people and says that there's no way that they can have meaningful relationships with people of the opposite, opposite gender. And so I think there's a whole host of, um, of, of, of things for us to think through there. But I think it's definitely possible, but there has to be wise boundaries. But, but that's true of any relationship, right? Um, all, all relationships need boundaries. Um, one of the things that we've said throughout this series is that we need to communicate to one another more that we love one another. You know, coming out of the pandemic, I've never felt that to be more true, that we need to communicate that we're a community of love and that we love one another. When we hear the words, though, I love you, I think that all, what we hear is, is romance. And so, Alice, I wondered whether you remember the first time that you told somebody that you loved them. Romantically? Yes. I do remember. And how, how did that go? Um, <clears throat> well, I remember I'd wanted to say it for a couple of days, but I didn't want to be the first person to say it, so I waited for him. Do you remember? <laughs> I do remember, yeah. Um, and it, I was a teenager, and it's like you build up all of your emotional strength to be able to say this thing, don't you? And I think I actually wrote it, I love you on a calculator and turned it upside down. You know that thing that he used to do? It took a lot of guts. Um, but why is it that we place more importance on that 
than us just saying to one another in, you know, in our friendship groups, you know, what's wrong with me saying, Joel, I really love you. Because I do. I really love him. He makes me a better person. Brogan, I really love you. Brogan makes me a better person too. And so I think some of the things that we need, one of the things that we need to redefine is love and the implications of when we say things, what we're actually communicating. Because as we keep saying, the be all and end all of love isn't just romance. Yeah, and I do think that reframing these conversations makes it much easier to see marriage and singleness as an equal gift, as long as we are living as though that's true and not just saying it. So, we've talked about how we all make assumptions about married people and all make assumptions about single people. One of the things that Alice um, shared is an assumption about married people is that married people must be less lonely. Let me tell you, from doing lots of marriage counselling, like having lots of newly married couples over to talk through their marriage in, in the vicarage over the years, I can tell you that the first year of marriage can be incredibly, incredibly lonely. This assumption that just because you've married somebody that all of your loneliness is going to go away just simply isn't true. And I think some of my single friends have made an assumption that once I was married, I didn't need their friendship as much anymore. And in fact, I needed it more than ever. And all married people need friendship more than ever in their early years of marriage. And so one of the things, again, as the vicar, that I want to challenge us as a church family, married people don't just spend time with married people. Single people don't just spend time with single people. I need Alice in order to thrive. We need each other in order to thrive. So let's name the assumptions that we believe about each other and, and deal with them so that we can be the best church family that we can be. Absolutely. Um, the third thing that we want to talk about today is singleness and family. So Lee said in his talk last week about marriage, that marriage is supposed to be a blessing to the people and the community around us. And like I mentioned earlier, I think the same is true of singleness, like Ben's just said as well. Paul uses the word gift in his writing to refer to something that God gifts us to build others up. It's about building the church, not about comfort or a sense of personal fulfillment. And I think that the goodness of singleness is something the whole church needs to know. It's obvious that single people need to be clear on that. But the Bible teaches for everyone. And that teaching on singleness is given to all people but because it's important for all of us because it's supposed to be a blessing to the people around us. Yeah, so Lee was absolutely right when he said last week that marriage is a gift to community and it's a gift to the church family. Um, Alice's singleness, as we've already said, is also a gift to the church family. One of the things that we do need to say at this point is that God has a different plan for when we think about family than the Western view of the biological family unit. Family is not just mum, dad, and two kids. In fact, it's rarely that these days anyway, is it? Theologically speaking, church is the true family. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. I said last week, for those of you that stuck around for the Q&A last week, when there was lots of questions about marriage, that we've got to do better as a church family and as a church generally when we talk about family. So one of the things that people will often say to me is, have you met the new family that came to church today? And what they often mean is, have you met the mum and the dad and their three kids? Just because someone is not married... It, or, or doesn't have children, it does not mean that they're not part of a family. We often 
say, um, we often hear people say, and I've heard this said a number of times in this church and in every church that I've been part of, when are you going to start a family? And that completely devalues any family that people have if they're not married or if they don't have kids. And so one of the things that we need to do is model what it means for us to be part of the church, the ultimate family, the church. And so Alice, what does being part of this church family and part of family mean to you? Well, my family of origin, to use a John Mark Comerism, consists of my mum and my dad and my younger brother. And for a variety of reasons, it's not always been easy to love each other very well. I treasure each of them, but we have faced some difficulties, including things that we still live with today. And that will be true of every nuclear family, biological or not, because we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. But one thing my parents and my brother have always done, in various ways, through successes and failings, including my own, is that they've pointed me towards Jesus. And so that quality of teaching me more about Jesus and showing me what it means to follow him and to love others as he has loved us has always been a marker for me, knowing that I've found family. So how, how do you see yourself being part of... Um... Of, of this church family in particular and being part of smaller family, you, like part, part of smaller family units in, in the church? Well, I think I'm in a unique position at St. Thomas's as part of the planting team because I moved up to Newcastle with a team of 30 people, most of whom were married, and then spent two years basically only able to be friends with that group of people, thanks to COVID. They're great, so it's fine. Um, and that could have been really difficult, especially as one of the only single people on the team. But actually... That time of investing in friendship and serving one another has led to a family like I've never known. My prayer is that the culture we have, where we not only say that we're like family, but also live it out, is something that spreads through St. Thomas's and grows into something that's true for every person in this room and everyone who joins us online. Particularly in my life, Beth and Gary do this really well. Last weekend, they rang me on Saturday morning and asked me if I fancied a trip to Durham with them and baby Taylor, just for coffee and to hang out with Beth's family. And I felt so included in their little family unit. So many of the young parents here trust me with their kids, which I'm really thankful for. It's an absolute joy to hang out with them, even if it's just to be part of tea time, bath time and bedtime, and to be trusted to speak into the lives of the kids and the young people in the church. And the friendships that I have here genuinely remind me of sibling love, from bickering and teasing, but always supporting and always caring. And Ben and Ellie, you guys have always modelled the love of God to me through encouragement and hospitality and opportunity and lots of other ways. And I would say that not being married or even in a relationship in the time that I've been at St. Thomas's has never stopped me from feeling worthy of being included in family. Absolutely. And I guess this is one of the things that we really want to say today is that our worth doesn't come from the relationships, human relationships that we are in. Whether we see ourselves as part of a family or not should not rest or depend on whether we are married or not or whether we have kids or not. One of the things that we need to relearn and have been asking God to teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit through this series is that ultimately our worth can only come through the good news of Jesus Christ. And that he's got for us a family that is his plan A for revealing his love to the world. And it's called the church. And yes, it can be messy. Yes, it can be difficult. Yes, it can be painful. And sometimes we get stuff wrong. But ultimately, your worth, Alice, my worth doesn't come from 
um, ultimately doesn't come from the relationships that I have, but comes because when I was still far off, when I was dead in my sin, Jesus saw me and chose me and said, I am having Ben. I'm having him. And I'm going to raise him from dead, from, from death, into new life and confer all of my righteousness upon all and take over all of his mess so that when the father looks at me, all he sees is Jesus's perfection and glory and beauty. And that's what gives me worth. That's the thing that makes me know that I am loved and that every single day I can wake up knowing that God speaks his affirmation and his love over me and it doesn't depend on how well I perform that particular day at my, at my job. It doesn't even depend on how many times I read the Bible that day. It's true just because it's true. And that's true for all of us, whether we're single, married, kids, no kids, messed up biological family, wonderful biological family, for all of us who've put our trust in Jesus. That is true. In John Mark Comer's book, Loveology, he asks the reader, do you have the gift of singleness? And then reframes the question to ask, do you have the calling and ability from God to live single in order to serve God in a greater capacity? Singleness isn't freedom from responsibility. It's freedom for more responsibility. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes that he thinks it's great to be single, maybe even better than being married, because it enables you to serve God in ways you can't if you're married. If you have the gift, even if it's just for a little while, don't waste time pining away after romance. Do what God has put on your heart and in your life for right now. The point of living is not to be married, and it's not whether or not you're single. It's to do what you were made to do and to bring glory to the one who made you. Amazing. Alice Wilkinson, everybody. Thanks.